0: In life, in life, where do you want to finish? Not first or last, although the last shall be first and the first last. Um, where do you want to leave life? How, how do you want to leave it? What, like, one thing do you want to make sure to accomplish or one legacy to have or what condition do you want to be in? on the day that your life ends, so that's what I mean. Where do you want to finish up in life? Think about that for a second. Where do you want to finish up? How do you want to finish up in life? I think that's a great meditative question. Where do you want to finish life? That's a question I ask myself quite a bit, actually, because if I keep the end in sight, it usually keeps me running well, you know? I don't I don't meander off quite as much as I would otherwise. I think it's a tough question to answer both specifically and wisely. You know, there's some good answers. Well, you know, I want to I want to finish life well with God. Okay. Yes, but that's a pretty general answer. What what do you want to have accomplished on the way? What do you want have to have invested in along the way? Is there some measure you want to have achieved by the end of your life? It's good to have goals, but life is surprising, right? And there are all sorts of twists and turns, so it's hard to be super specific about that. In in our culture, uh, and sort of you know, Gen X and. And uh, and down the millennials, uh, I think I think we're actually pretty good starters. I think we're pretty good joiners. I think we're I think we're doers, and that's one thing I really love about you know the younger uh, generations in in America. You know, we'll we'll just up and do things. Uh, we'll pull the trigger pretty quickly. I'm not sure that we're great finishers as a rule. Uh, I think we're pretty good at making commitments. I'm not entirely sure we're good at following through on commitments for a long time because we're sort of a keep your options open, always search for a better deal sort of people, by and large. And so it's especially good for us to be thinking about how we want to finish because the thing that counts is where we finish in life. Agreed? It's not where we start Uh, It's not how we do in the middle. Obviously, the thing that counts is where we finish in life. That's one thing that Scripture makes clear. You know, there's always a point of commitment in our pursuits, and there's always a point that tests our commitment in whatever it is that we are pursuing in life. You know, there's a point at which all the information has been presented, and we have to decide what it is we're going to do about it and, and how we're going to do it. Are we going to you know, buy the car. Are we going to sign the lease? Are we going to uh, marry uh, this person? Are we going to take this job? You know, these, these are you know fairly big life things uh, that call for decision and call for commitment. Some sorts of commitments, even the big ones, are easier for us to make in life because they're normal by the standards of our culture. You know marriage, job, major purchases, all those things are sort of normal. And we get a lot of encouragement from our culture to decide and commit to those things, although following through can be challenging. Uh, today, uh, going to college is fairly normal. Just a couple generations ago, it wasn't. Now, not going to college can, be, uh, the more can require a firmer decision uh, than, than going uh, almost. Uh, having a kid. Pretty normal. Big commitment. Big commitment. Not having a kid in our culture uh, can require a more intentional decision uh, sometimes uh, for married people. Some commitments we make are harder because they're more independent. And most of our spiritual commitments are very independent ones. Uh, And so we have to be extra resolved within ourselves. Some people have a harder time making commitments because they have uh, a non-committal mindset. You know, they're just, they have a hard time making decisions because they just wanna gather more and more information endlessly. Um, Some people make commitments, but they have a hard time following through. Um, It varies from individual to individual. But in life, there are points that call for moves of commitment. And at these points, we have to do two things. We have to decide what the commitment is going to mean for us, and then we have to figure out how it is that we're going to follow through. How are we going to go about keeping that commitment through life to finish it well? And all of that, I think, uh, is what the rest of the Bible is about we've been in this uh, sermon series on the whole arc of the Bible. We're taking a look at not just one book of the Bible, but the whole Bible. But we're taking a look at it from like the 30,000 foot level from beginning to end. And, and today we're kind of wrapping up our arc of the Bible. We're taking a look at the rest of the Bible, by which I mean uh, the Bible that follows after the gospels, after the Jesus stories, after Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, it comes the book of Acts, which is a history of the early church, and then a lot of books called epistles or letters, and what they are that they are, they're letters written from Christian leaders to churches or groups of churches uh, in uh, in the New Age of of uh, the New Testament, uh, and they're and they're basically the epistles, the letters there are letters of advice from Christian leaders uh, that are uh, about well, they're commentaries and extrapolations on the Gospels. Uh, basically, they're saying, all right, we have uh, all the teachings of Jesus that we have recorded. We have the Jesus stories recorded. Now, now, let's kind of extrapolate from there. Let's figure out what all those teachings mean for us as we try to live them out. So they're commentaries in and that, in that. So coaching you know, in, the, in that sense. And and there's a lot of uh, advice on living the life that comes from believing what Jesus taught in the gospels and living the life that comes from believing in the Jesus stories that we read in in the gospels. Here's how it all fits together, very generally at 30,000 feet. At the beginning of the Bible and our old ancient stories we find in the book of Genesis, we discover that the basic problem of humanity is whether or not we trust God. Uh, When we don't trust God, bad things happen. Uh, That's what the early stories are about. Uh, And so God sets up the world in such a way that the point of life is to grow in trusting God. And the first thing we learn about uh, the way God has set up the world is that to trust God, we have to go on a journey, a faith journey And the stories of Abraham and the the very early faith journeyers come in the the latter part of the book of Genesis. Uh, The journey of faith is a journey of purpose instead of a journey of security. It's always a journey into some degree of uncertainty, and it always involves trying to walk out the purpose that the Lord gives to you, the calling that the Lord gives to you. Then we get a chunk of the Bible that's all about getting free, the stories of the Exodus, the story of God's people coming out of slavery. Then we get a chunk of the Bible that's about staying free. The Lord gives us certain rules, guideposts, institutions, and sacrificial systems that all help us to stay free. Once we've gotten free of the world mindset, how are we going to stay free? Well, there are things that you can do, rules that you can keep to stay free. But it turns out that even if you're living in your land of promise, even if you're living a life of purpose, you have to learn how to fight in order to keep advancing your purpose. And so there's a huge chunk of the Old Testament that's about you know, having the proper fighting spirit. Uh, to follow through on God's purposes. There's a chunk of the Old Testament that's all about the Lord speaking. Uh, that God speaks in real time, and so we always should be listening. So we get tons and tons of prophetic books and tons of information about how God speaks and how, how listening to God requires faith. It's not a totally obvious system. You have to lean into it a little bit to understand Him well. We get some books that I call best practices. Learning to learn well, like the book of Proverbs. Learning to write down lessons and pass them on. Learning to worship well, because worship is such a valuable experience to keep your heart in the life of faith. So we get song books like the book of Psalms. The Bible addresses real-life issues, and the biggest real-life issue is suffering. We get a whole book of the Bible, Job, that's about why righteous people suffer and what God's answer to it might be. And then we get a section of books that are about the unique challenges of restoration. You've gotten free, you've lived in purpose, but you've kind of fallen apart. Now you need a redo. Now you need another chance and indeed we get stories of the history of God's people coming out of exile. First they were in slavery, but then they got sent into exile. They're coming back into their land of promise for the second time, and that develops some unique challenges. All of that is the story of the Old Testament, and then the New Testament begins with the Gospels, which is, the story of Jesus, and Jesus is the great aha moment of humanity. Jesus is the representation and the demonstration of everything that we've read about and experienced as a people in the Old Testament. Jesus shows up and kind of makes it clear if you will just receive him and look at him in the right way. Um, He talks about bringing, uh, and very generally, he talks about bringing life to chaos. The world is in chaos. The world is messed up from the very beginning, like the stories say. But we're bringing order. We're bringing this thing that Jesus calls the kingdom of God, or the order of God, or the order of heaven, as it's called in the Gospel of of Matthew. Wherever there is disorder, wherever there is chaos, wherever there is death and injustice and poverty or alienation from God, we as followers of Jesus are called to bring the order of God to it, to bring healing, to bring restoration, to bring reconciliation between people and God. Jesus, the aha moment. Life out of chaos. Just like it was at the beginning of Genesis, so it is at the beginning of the New Testament. We're bringing life out of the disorder of of the world. And then at the very end of the Jesus stories, Jesus does an extraordinary thing. He takes the story, which he has sort of summed up and demonstrated, and he puts it in our laps. And he says, all right, now you guys carry it forward. It started with a group of fishermen and day laborers and political dissenters, and they were the ones that were charged specifically with carrying it forward. But eventually all the people of God would be, would be called to carry the God story forward, the story about bringing godly life out of the chaos of the world. And that's our calling. Jesus never calls anyone to faith except he calls that person to a purpose, to a mission. And our mission is to bring life out of the chaos of the world. We definitely have a mission. But how should we go about it? Exactly what does it mean practically? And then, well, here comes the rest of the Bible. We get the story of the book of Acts, which is basically an account of the life of the early church. And then we get all these epistles that give us practical advice about how to walk it out now that we've accepted the God mission. Now that we've accepted the mission of bringing the order of heaven to earth, bringing life to the chaos of the world. And in very general terms, I think the rest of the Bible gives us three answers about how to go about our God mission. Number one, we have to honor the godly principles that have been clear through all the story, but particularly made clear through the life and teaching of Jesus. So first there's the principles that we need to honor. And then secondly, we need to follow the Holy Spirit, which is to say we have to follow our guide. In this day and age, God is with us in a unique way. Uh, We call the manifestation of God with us the Holy Spirit. God is present currently. And to walk To follow Jesus means to walk with the Holy Spirit. He's constantly speaking, even to the little children who hear him quite well, uh, very frequently. He's always speaking, he's always guiding. Uh, The story of the book of Acts is essentially the story of the early Christian leaders trying to catch up with the lead of the Holy Spirit in real time. All sorts of miracles and prophetic communication happen. So there's the principles, there's our Holy Spirit guide, and then there's the community that we operate in. God's people have always been a people. They have always been a group. They've always been a family. They've always been an ohana, a team. And that does not change in the New Testament, although now we are better equipped to be God's people than we have ever been. So we honor the principles. We follow our Holy Spirit guide in real time. And we do it together. And almost everything that you read in Acts and the epistles are about one of those three things. Understanding the principles, following the guide of the Holy Spirit in your life in real time and doing it together and what goes into doing it together and why it's so good to do it together. If I were to summarize the principles of uh, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has made so clear to us, I would talk about four of them. I would generalize them into four categories. And if you've been around Blue Water, you know these categories because we call them our four distinctives. Principles that we emphasize in order to keep ourselves honest as we try to live the life of order uh, in the world. And the first principle is what? Grace, thank you very much. Um, grace or, or you might even call it radical generosity or as it's worked out practically, anti-religiosity. That Jesus came into a culture that had kind of forgotten purpose and remembered only religion or religiosity. They made a big deal about religion and Jesus came along and said, no, no, I'm not going to make a big deal about religion. I'm not going to make a big deal about rules and institutions. I'm going to make a big deal about purpose and calling. Um, and uh, Almost everything else is, is, is negotiable. Um, grace means that God forgives in a reckless fashion. And I love all of the Jesus stories about grace. This was maybe the most revolutionary thing that he did. He just forgave people. He ministered to people. He served people who were definitionally unrighteous people. They were sinners. You know, He prioritized the worst people. He prioritized the outcasts. My favorite uh, early story from the Gospel of Mark: uh, Jesus encounters uh, a man who uh, is crippled. He's been lowered through a roof by his friends in hope that Jesus would heal him. And the first thing Jesus says to this, you know, pile of limbs that has been lowered through the ground, he says, "You're forgiven." And all the religious people in the room say, "He's forgiving people. Only God can do that." Dot dot dot. And it requires a proper sacrifice and, you know, you know, blood ceremony and all this other stuff. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. He's forgiven. Which is easier to say? He's forgiven or to heal him and make him rise up and walk, this paralyzed man. But that you might know, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Rise, pick up your mat and walk. And the man is miraculously healed. But his healing in that instance, as is so often the case in the Gospels, is a demonstration of Grace. Right? The guy didn't do anything to deserve it and Jesus' point is you don't do anything to deserve God's presence. Your sin, your mistakes does not do not keep God from you. The only question is, will you accept the God who's already here? God accepts you, will you accept Him is the issue. That's grace. It was, it's, grace is the most foreign concept in the world. It's very hard for us humans to get past the mindset of deserving and into the mindset of of freedom. Grace is a big one. The second big one, actually it's the thing that by quantity of teachings, Jesus taught about more than any other thing in all of the gospels. And I'm talking about what, Blue Waters? Money. Uh, Jesus taught anti-materialism. He taught money freedom. He said, the world is money sick. The world is money sick. And my people need to be characterized by money freedom. You know, you can have money, You can have a lot of money, or you can have a little bit of money, but I need you to be money-free. I need you to not worry about money. The Lord's going to provide for you. I want you to worry about purpose way more than you worry about money. Uh, And so he taught taught about that constantly. He boiled it down famously in one instance. uh, in his most famous uh, sermon saying, you cannot serve both God and money, which always strikes me like a ton of bricks because I would expect a religious leader to say, you can't serve both God and yourself. You can't serve both God and Satan. You can't serve both God and sin. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, you can't serve both God and money. Why does he say that? It's because Jesus knows that money more than anything else is the way the world gets you. It's the way the world sows chaos into your head and prevents you from living your life of purpose. Money is the main challenge. And it's such an awesome challenge that most of us are money sick and we don't even realize it. We will make choices about where to live in the world according to how much salary we can get paid in that place. It's great to have a big salary, but it's not the thing that should determine the direction of your life or the people that you're with or what you're doing. God's purpose should determine those things. And it's very hard to get deconditioned and freed from the money mindset. So anti-religiosity, excuse me, anti-materialism, a huge principle. Supernaturalism is a huge principle that Jesus passed to his followers. So, Multiple times in the Gospels, he says to his followers, all right, go out and preach that the kingdom of God is, is here. Preach that, that God is restoring order right now. Uh, heal the sick, raise the dead, uh, cleanse the lepers, uh, cast out demons. In other words, just go do a bunch of supernatural things because that is, is one main way in which we live in an otherworldly fashion, and two, we restore order to the world. So we have to hear from God supernaturally. We have to heal each other supernaturally. Or on occasion, as made manifest by the miracle of the loaves and fishes, we need to receive provisions supernaturally. Look, we are supernatural people. We are supernatural people. We don't get a miracle We don't get the miracle that we want every time that we snap our fingers, but if we are living lives that don't require miracles, then we have missed the boat. We've missed the boat entirely. So supernaturalism was actually a huge thing for Jesus. He taught on it again and again and again. And then mission orientation. I've already said it, that Jesus never called a person to faith except that he called that person to a job and a job to do. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. There was always a second part. Right? To follow Jesus, you need to know what you're about. You need to know what you're going to do for the sake of faith in the coming week. Um, those are the principles. Now, how those principles are worked out specifically in your life. Uh, is probably a matter of you following the guide, you plugging into the lead of the Holy Spirit in your life. One of the last things that Jesus said uh, to his his main followers before ascending to heaven in the first chapter of the book of Acts was, um, "You know, wait, wait in Jerusalem. Don't try anything crazy until you receive uh, the gift my Father promised. For in a few days, he says in Acts chapter one, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit." And you will receive power when that happens. Power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If you are going to pull this off, guys, you're going to need some power from the Holy Spirit. From God's presence in the, in the here and now. And then the rest of the book of Acts is about those guys trying to keep up with the Holy Spirit. As he constantly uh, surprised them. Um, my favorite example comes from Acts chapter 10, where Peter has been called to the house of this Gentile, this Roman uh, centurion, this Roman leader. And he doesn't think that Gentiles can come into the club yet. He doesn't think that they can get baptized, but lo and behold, the Holy Spirit just jumps on all the Gentiles while Peter is preaching and they all start praising God and prophesying and speaking in tongues and doing all of these supernatural things. Peter eventually goes back to Jerusalem where the other apostles get mad at him. You let Gentiles in? How dare you? And he said, what could I do? The Holy Spirit fell upon them. They received the gift just like we did. The Holy Spirit was always a step ahead and we're always trying to catch up with the Holy Spirit. There's a great kind of summary of life in the early church in this fashion. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, it's, it's a scripture on your program. And what, what this is right at the beginning of, of the book of Acts. It's, what it really is, is an early account of how, how Jesus' followers, some people that had walked with him and some people that were brand new who had just come into the fold, if you will, they, they were trying to figure out what to do I mean, there was no tradition, there were no institutions, there was no guidebook. It's like, how do we live this out? So this is kind of where they landed on that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, because they knew what Jesus said directly, and to fellowship, to gathering together, to the breaking of bread, sharing meals, and to prayer, Everyone who was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the Apostles. Very supernatural time. All the believers were together together, and had everything in common. They shared all of their material possessions. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Extraordinarily anti-materialistic. Extraordinarily supernatural. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Greek sozo, literally restored. Those who were coming back into their full humanity with God. I just think that's a tremendous summary Right? It sort of puts it all together. All the principles are there, the supernaturalism, the mission orientation, uh, the anti-materialism, the grace, the radical generosity, and the community. How many times does the word together appear in that summary? One of the first things God people realized when Jesus disappeared from the earth and they were like, all right, I guess it's our show now, what do we do? Well, we kind of do what Jesus did, and we better do it together. We better do it together. Keep ourselves honest, make the most of it. So this gets us to community. Our community, our gathering together is sort of the engine of trust and purpose in our lives. A commitment to God is always a commitment to gather with people. A commitment to God is always a commitment to community, which is why we do what we do, which is why there is such a thing as Blue Water Mission. We started eight or nine years ago as a group of friends who wanted to keep ministry going. And so we said, well, we better become a church then. We better become a congregation, to use the christian word, because out of community, ministry is fortified and individuals grow. The, the church, the gathering, gathering with other believers is, is an important system of otherworldly living. It's what keeps you in an otherworldly mindset. There's a, a second verse on your program from Hebrews 10. It says Hebrews 1 on your program. It's a missing zero. It's my fault. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. So this is one of the epistles, one of the early early Christian leaders writing advice to God's people, and about a generation or so has passed since Jesus' life on earth, and a little section of advice that has become very famous in the life of the church, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, which is kind of a fancy way of saying, let's make sure we walk the talk for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. All right, so let's walk the talk and and let's figure out how to help each other do what we're supposed to do. Spur one another on uh, to... uh, toward love and good deeds. That phrase, spur one another on, in some translations is translated, let us compete with one another in the doing of love and good deeds. I actually kind of prefer that, that translation better because you know it's not competition in an unfriendly sense. It's like, come on, you can do better than that. Come on, we can do this together. This sort of idea of as, as best you can be let us spur one another on toward love and good Let's consider how best to do that, dot, dot, dot. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. So the best way to spur one another on, the best way to help each other to follow through on your life of purpose is to gather together. You got to have a posse. You got to have peeps. You got to have a crew. You got to have an ohana if you're going to live the life of faith. Some people are in the habit of forgetting that. Some people are like, well, you know, it's just me and God. It's just like, you know, I've got enough in my life. I can't really commit to a larger community. You will get taken out. Let us uh, consider how we can spur one another on toward loving good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, giving courage, giving faith to one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's never been more important than it is today. It's never been more important than it is now. Uh, It's in the community where all the principles are worked out. It's easy to have a lot of grace for people if you're not around people. And then you start gathering with them and you find out that they're They're troublesome uh, creatures. It's easy to be in love with someone until after marriage. And then you find out that love takes a little work. And then once you do the work, honey, it's really easy to be in love with someone uh, again. But, you know, there's a difference between love and romance, of course. It's, it's in life together that grace is worked out. It's in life together that love is worked out. It's in life together that anti-materialism is worked out because it's when you're involved with a lot of people that you feel the need to share with them, right? It's, uh, it's hard to live a life of materialism if you're surrounded with very poor, needy friends. Then you're challenged to share what you have. That's why in the early days, all the believers shared everything in common. Um, life together is often how us being supernatural is expressed. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, Now to each person, a supernatural gift has been given for the common good. When you come together, that's when all of your gifts find a way to be expressed. You know, Some people, like little Jordan, are gifted prophetically, so he's going to prophesy to people on the prayer line. Other people are gifted musically, so they're going to minister uh, so that we can worship and music together. Uh, some people are gifted in teaching uh, and empowering the congregation. I mean, not me, but some people are gifted in teaching and can really build people up in that way. We're gonna have some healers over here later, but all of those things can be expressed when we come together, because it's the perfect interface of capability and need. People are gifted artistically and can express the teaching and the prophecy of the Lord that way. We could go on and on and on. I love uh, the body of Christ. Paul would compare it to body parts. Some people are gifted as eyes. Some people are gifted as ears. Some people are gifted as hands. Some people are the toes, I suppose. You know, they keep us balanced. They shepherd us onto the straight path. I don't know, but that was Paul's analogy, not mine. I love that. And this is where we remind each other that we have a mission orientation. This is where people ask you, what did you fail to do this week that you ought to have done? What did you not do because of fear? It's where people ask you awkward questions and you have to think about it. Where do you want to finish? It's where you have to share about that. It's where you develop little subgroups that keep you on the straight and narrow. Some people think that, 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 the, that church is the mission, that the whole point is to do church really, really well. Eh, you know, it is and it isn't the mission. Gathering together isn't necessarily a a goal, but it's the mode of accomplishing our goal. Here's a big truism, and this is the big point I want to end our day with. In this day and age in the kingdom of God, you are either building community up or you are breaking it down. Which is to say you are either building the community of God's people up or you are breaking it down. One of two things. I don't think there's much middle ground uh, for us. The epistles spend a lot of time on on this truism um, because there's so much chaos in the world. You know, in life, you're either advancing with God or you're drifting from God. You're never staying in one place. And life together, we're either building up the community or we're breaking down a community. We're never just staying in one place. Um, So, in the early parts of the book of Acts, the early epistles, we read a lot about the conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles in the early church. You know, like everybody was being gathered in to the family. And the Jewish people had certain customs that the Gentile people did not share. And, and how was it that they were coming together? And that was a big conflict. They had to figure out how to build up community together, a community of diversity. That was like the first really huge issue in, in the church. And they decided that they would side on building community up, putting aside everything that they possibly could in order to make it work in a diverse environment. There are huge, huge chunks of the epistles are given over uh, to what you might call living in peace with one another and what, what you have to do in order to keep the peace in a large family. Think about all you have to do to keep the peace in your biological family. I'll just extrapolate that out to a community of you know, hundreds of people. There's a lot that you need to do to keep the peace, but the epistles make clear, keep the peace at great cost. Do everything that you can uh, to to pull it off. Um, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. That Greek word for holy means to be different. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to maintain a different sort of life. Without being different, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. What the author of Hebrews is doing here is saying, when you can't get along, it ruins everything. It defiles us and it keeps us from appearing different to the world. We look like everybody else when we start arguing and bickering and and isolating ourselves away from church or not going to a Hana group. All the difference gets sucked out of your life when community gets sucked out of your life. That's how it works. So, you know, maybe you're fortifying the church or gathering people into the church Every aspect of the church, whether it's justice ministry, keiki ministry, supernatural ministry, will have an aspect of community building in it, an aspect of we have to get along to pull this off. We have to gather in uh, to pull this off. And there's this part of human nature as well. Whatever you're trying to do becomes real for you when you do it in a group. Whatever you're trying to do in life becomes real for you when you do it in a group. That's where reality hits. Which is why I always have you share with somebody on Sunday morning. It's like, when you, you have the answer in your head, but it doesn't become real to you until you share it with somebody. And then there's a whole other order of, of reality. I had to learn this lesson about community the hard way because I am as introverted as they come. Um, and, and life with people has always been uh, difficult for me Um, I am uh, most comfortable alone, least comfortable with people. It's easier for me to talk to hundreds of people than to like sit with one or two people and have a conversation. Anybody else like that? Just kind of how I'm wired. More than other people, I think I need to be disciplined about the way that I do community. It was like my first big discipleship lesson uh, when I was in college. I learned it really well, and I have shared it so many times Over the years. Um, I will, from time to time, chase different ones of you down and I will say, where have you been? Um, Are you attending an Ohana group? Something like that. I want you to understand why I'm doing that. It's not because I just really need your butt in the seat on Sunday morning so that I feel like a better man or something like that. It's because I know that without community, you're not living a life of purpose. You know, that that's why we're serious about that. It is a huge the, the last part of the Bible is 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 largely about this. Your purpose will be worked out only in groups of, of other people. So we try to follow up so that you follow through and and finish well. You're not going to do it alone. Um, From time to time, another instance, we have people um, who are sort of part of Blue Water and sort of part of other churches as well. Sometimes we get these hybrid um, small groups at church. Those of you who are church veterans maybe know what I'm talking about where people to gather, gather together weekly and some are from this church and some are from that church and they have a small group or a fellowship time um, that feels diverse. But it, I always tell people if you're in a group like that, um, you're probably breaking down community, not building it up because what you've decided is that the church where you ostensibly attend isn't, isn't quite serving you right so you're not going to be fully a part of that church you're not going to be fully a part of one community or the other you're kind of going to mix it up it's like picking and choosing different food items from a buffet don't be a buffet christian right commit here or commit to another community you know it may not matter which but it's only by committing to one and sticking with it that you get all of the blessed inconveniences of family life, right? That's the spur of growth. If you're not getting what you need, then be part of the solution. Help create it because somebody else probably needs it as well. All of which is to say, you know, as, as Christians, we take community seriously because we take purpose seriously So I'll end with one more question. Um, If you are healthy in your life of following Jesus, if you are healthy in your life of purpose, you are in one of two phases. You are either being gathered in or you are gathering in. Does that make sense? You are either in the process of kind of getting to know the ropes of working it out, of figuring it out like the early Christians were doing. Like, okay, well, what I I, I buy into it now. What do I have to do to make my life work in light of Jesus? What do I have to do to get the principles working? What do I have to do to follow the Spirit? What do I have to do to live out a life of purpose? You're in that early phase uh, of figuring it out. You're being gathered in to uh, the community of God's people. And if that's where you are, fantastic. That's awesome. You gotta join an Ohana group, and then you've gotta figure out some place to serve in in, in ministry, probably. You can pick one of the many ministry teams that we have of a church, or or just make your Ohana group uh, the core of your ministry, but you have to figure out how to serve in some fashion. That's the process of being gathered in. If you're there, if you've, if you've sort of aced that bit, then you have to be one who gathers others in. To be God's witness in your world as it says in Acts chapter 1. If you are stuck in your Christian life, then there are two, one of two reasons that you're stuck. Either you've given up on being gathered in, right, you've sort of quit You've, you've absented yourself out of community in some fashion. Or, you're not get, trying to gather anyone in. You're not trying to multiply because the kingdom grows. So that's a great way to diagnose where you are in life. Are you being gathered in or are you gathering in? Now, of course, there's a certain artificial separation there because, you know, life with Jesus has seasons. We, we always... You know, we'll get gathered in a little more and a little more each year. And there are always ways in which we become better gatherers uh, each year. But, but where are you? Are you being gathered in? Or are you gathering in? Or has chaos taken you? Have you lost your momentum? Are you failing to finish, to follow through? I am so thankful being part of a community that's so serious uh, about the principles of Jesus, about following the Holy Spirit guide, and about building a family of purpose. You know, not a family of convenience or anything like that. Really passionate about bringing life to chaos. Um, and you guys are helping me uh, to finish well. And uh, there's just no greater gift that people can give me. And I thank you and, and honor you for that. Let's pray. Could the communion servers come up, please. Well, Heavenly Father, um, I, uh, I thank you that the end of the story now falls to us. And I pray that as we follow Jesus, you would empower us with the Holy Spirit to be different and to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. I pray that we would be extraordinarily flavorful people, that we would be full of salt and full of light. I pray, Lord, that as we celebrate communion today, as we celebrate community with you and community with one another, that our communion would be a communion of purpose, faith, and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.